In the book of Romans, we learn that uh, our inner self, our spirit, is engaged in a lifelong battle with the outer flesh of our mortal body. Now, we don't uh, believe in the ancient Greek philosophy of uh, dualism, which says, well, the body is inherently bad and the spirit is good. We don't believe in that because God's word says that our bodies are good. He made our bodies and they are good. God designed our bodies. Our bodies are good. But the problem with this uh, outer flesh of our mortal body is that it is infected with a spiritual and a disease called sin. And this sin dwells in the body. And it's the sin that's in the body that is bad. And, and with sin comes sickness and, and growing old and eventually death. And not only this, but we also dwell in a realm of spiritual darkness. Ever since Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence in the Garden of Eden, Mankind, all of their descendants, have been born in and live in and will die in a world gone wrong. And so we live in an environment that's not conducive to our spirit, which wants to serve God. And yet what God did, God in Christ invaded this present evil darkness. And he came to give us life. Jesus Christ became a human just like you and me and yet without sin. And Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins and he rose from the grave in order for us to have eternal life. And so we who, for we who believe that in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, once we believe in him, we, the Bible says we get saved. And this is a, a term that is sort of uh, even common in our, in our society because so much has been made of getting saved. And, and we obtain salvation as a gift from God. And the passage of Scripture that we look at today, in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, and I invite you to go ahead and begin turning there, that passage of Scripture will describe our salvation from the perspective of God. And now the salvation that God gives, it does not mean that we are protected from bad things that happen to us. That's not what it means when you get saved. When you get saved, if you think, well, now that I'm a Christian, you know, no bad things are going to happen to me. I'm going to, I'm going to be uh, all right and I'll never have to go through any trouble. So, well, that's just not real. And that's not what God's word promises either. Because God's word always promises reality. But what it does mean when you get saved is that God takes everything in our life and he produces good out of it he produces a good outcome and we'll see exactly what that outcome is so in romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 30 if you have an ac access to a bible i'd ask you to turn there with me and if not the words will appear on the screen behind me, we're in a series called Romans, Mercy to All. And once you found the place, I'd ask you to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. In Romans chapter 8, we'll just read three verses, verses 28 through 30. The Bible says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, 
he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Heavenly Father, these simple verses that we've read contain some some terms that are very deep and challenging for us. So I pray that you'd grant us your perspective. And Lord, I pray that you'd teach us exactly how much it is that you love us and you've pursued us, you've called us, and you've brought us to yourself so that we can be grateful for your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, sometimes the most familiar verses in the Bible are the most misunderstood ones. And if we rush through a verse, we might actually end up summarizing it in a way that it means something completely different than what it actually says. And Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is like that. I mean, this verse is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. If you were to do a Google search for uh, famous verses in the Bible, it won't take you long before this one shows up. And no matter what list you look at, just about. But if we don't slow down and read it carefully, we'll end up believing wrong things about life and wrong things about God. So let's look at this verse again. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. In its entirety, it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, according to His purpose. This verse does not say that everything that happens in your life is good. It does not say that. It does not say that everything that happens in your life is good. Because in this life, Bad things do happen to you. And good things do happen to you as well. It's a mix. And so, just to be clear, we are not Christian science practitioners. Christian science is a religious movement that basically says that evil does not exist. It says that sin does not exist. Sickness does not exist. It says that nothing really bad that you might think is bad, it doesn't really exist. It says that if you think something bad happens to you, well, it's really just a figment of your imagination. It's not real. All you have to do is change your thinking. And so we're not Christian science practitioners. I mean, all of that's just nonsense. It's imaginative speculation. Christian science is neither Christian nor is it science. And so we're not, certainly not that. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, does not teach that all things that happen to you are good. It doesn't say that. It says that God causes all things, meaning good things and bad things, to work together to produce good. And so, just to be clear, God never promises that your life will be free from trouble. In fact, Jesus promised just the opposite. In John chapter 16, verse 33, on the last day before Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was put up on a cross. And if you don't think that that's right, it certainly wasn't right for someone who's sinless to be put up on a cross. 
something bad happened to Jesus himself, and yet a lot of good occurred and was produced through that bad event. So on the day before he was arrested, Jesus said these words in John 16, 33, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. Take courage. I have overcome the world. So let me tell you something else that Romans chapter 8, verse 28, does not say. It does not say all things work together for good as if God's not involved. We need to not leave God out of this verse. It's not like the universe causes all things to work together for good. It's not like karma causes all things to work together for good. It's not like all things work together for good because you're just so deserving. It's not that all things work together for good just because. No. The verse says, God causes all things to work together for good. This means that God is active in this world. And not only is God active in this world in the big sense, on the big stuff, but God is active in every single, solitary, little, minuscule part of your life. Every single part of your life. God is involved. He is active. And so God causes all things, the verse says, to work together for good. That means. The pieces are fitting together because God has a plan. There is a goal that God has in mind. And God, when he makes plans, he carries them out. God, when he has goals, he fulfills his goals. And so the plan here for all these things in my life are working together according to some invisible plan that I cannot see. This plan is God's plan. The goal is God's goal. God is building something. And part of what He is building is you and me. He's working on something. And He's working on us. Now, make no mistake about it, God is building much more than you. And He's building much more than me. But he is building me. Spiritually, he is building you. You know the old saying, God's not finished with me yet? It's absolutely true. God is building you. You know, if somebody were to give me a box with every single part of an exquisite Swiss watch but all the parts were separate in this box you know i i probably would not know what to do with all of that because i don't have the knowledge i don't have the expertise i certainly don't have the craftsmanship to put all the parts together make them all work together to produce something good and beautiful and grand and majestic 
like it's designed to be. But God has all of the knowledge. He has all of the craftsmanship. He has all of the, the beauty in his own mind. Everything beautiful that you ever were to look at in this world. All of the beauty of this creation. It was first beauty in the mind of God. The beauty that you look at when you see yourself in the mirror and you, before you start snickering and say, well, I'm not so beautiful as I used to be. Listen, listen. God says you're beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Those wrinkles that you didn't used to have that your kids caused you, yeah. Those are beautiful wrinkles. Beautiful wrinkles, just like God designed. That gray hair that's coming in, that sometimes we cheat and we dye it away. God says it's beautiful. Scripture even talks about the glory of those with gray hair. You are absolutely beautiful. The beauty that you see in all of creation, and I hope you do see it when you look in the mirror, that beauty is first in the mind of God. And God is putting something together in you. Not just the physical. He's putting something together in you spiritually. There's a part of you that is spiritually gold. And that gold needs to be refined. There's a part of you spiritually that is diamond. And those diamonds need to be polished. There's a part of you that are like gears. And those gears need to be set right. And they need to be turned. And they need to be adjusted. And there's some springs there in you that need to be put in place. And they need to be pressed down and made tense for them to fit in just the right place. The right kind of tension has to be there. And sometimes we fuss about the refining and the polishing and the adjusting and the pressing and the tension and the change that we have to go through in this life. But God is causing all these things in your life to work together for good. He's building something in you. Let's talk about that word good. God is building something that's good. You know, we, we talk about our lives being filled with good and with bad. And people say, well, you got to take the bad with the good. And that's true. In this life, sometimes it just seems like bad wins, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes you just sort of feel beat up. You have a bad day or bad week, bad year before you know it. It just seems like, hey, where's the good in my life? I'm having trouble seeing it. There's an awful lot of bad, and I feel like the bad's winning. That bad, when it wins, it's just temporary. It's a temporary victory for the bad. It's a temporary loss for the good. I mean, it seemed like bad won a victory in El Paso and Dayton last week. I mean, because it just doesn't get much worse than that. 
numerous people killed, many families left brokenhearted. But in the end, good will win. This isn't the ancient Eastern thought of yin and yang, the black and the white, and everything balances out and everything. Or this isn't some, some type of uh, Hindu idea of karma where it all just sort of balances out. No, in the end, good wins. There won't be any more bad. Good will win. If you read the final chapters of the Bible, that contains the final chapters of human history. And we've read the end of the book. Good wins. And in the end, only good will remain. Now, this next point that I want to make is really most important. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 does not say that God causes all things to work together for good for everyone. It's not for everyone. Only certain people get this blessing. Look at the verse again. Verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And then he clarifies. Paul clarifies when he writes this, who the people who love God are. It is to those who are called according to his purpose. God has a specific purpose in mind. There's something very specific that God is doing with us. And if we study the next two verses carefully, the Apostle Paul reveals to us the good that awaits us someday. And why all this trouble of trying to live a good life and you're getting so beat up and it seems like the bad is winning, why all of this trouble is really worth it. It's worth it in the end. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 29. The Bible says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The people for whom God causes all things to work together for good are described in this verse in the next verse. There are people, these are the people that God foreknew foreknew. What does this mean? What's the foreknowledge of God mean? What does that mean exactly? Okay, let's talk about it. In a very broad sense, you know, before any event happens or any human is alive, God knows every single possibility, both the events that happen and the events that don't happen, potential events and events that become real. I'll give you an example. If I had a, a die, you know, a paradise, let's say I had one, had a die, and I were to roll a die, you would know that there are six possibilities, right? One through six. Only one would come true. But you would foreknow the other five. And that's a very simple way of thinking about it, but, but I want you to understand that God foreknows all things. He, he foreknows possibilities that don't even come to pass. And I'll give you an example straight out of Scripture about this, and you can study this a little bit more on your own time, or if you get really bored with this sermon, you can study it. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 14, in this passage, uh, David is being chased by Saul. And uh, David is in a town, and he makes an inquiry because he hears that Saul is nearby, and maybe Saul knows where he's at. 
And, he, and so David inquires of the Lord whether the men of the town that he's in will hand him over to Saul who wants to kill him. And the Lord said, they will hand you over to Saul. So David left town. And it never happened. God foreknew what would happen. But a human's free decision, David's free choice, changed the outcome. What was certain to happen became nothing more than a potential outcome that God foreknew. But when you get to Romans 8, this type of foreknowledge seems to be a little bit deeper. Because in Romans 8, there seems to be more than simply God foreknowing all possibilities because he's talking about foreknowing some people in a sense that he's not foreknowing other people. But we know in a general sense God knows all people. But this seems to be more intimate. It seems to be more personal, more relational here. When you read Romans chapter 8, verse 29... You, you get a sense, if you think back to Psalm 139, that beautiful psalm where the psalmist says, when I was still in my mother's womb, the Lord knew me. God says, I knew you in your mother's womb and how you are wonderfully made. And we get that type of intimacy here, it seems. And so how are we to understand all this talk about foreknowledge, and predestination, and calling, and so on. Well, let me just summarize for you what I believe. And I hope that if you have different convictions than I do about these theological issues, that you can still feel free to worship together, and that you'll uh, still support our church financially, because that's important. But seriously, there are some theological issues that are so essential that they set the boundaries of Christian fellowship. In other words, who is Jesus? If we can't agree on who Jesus is, okay, we may not be able to worship together. Um, how is a person saved? If you were to say to me, oh, a person is saved just by being a good person. Well, I believe Scripture teaches something very different from that. That we're saved by the grace of God. And so we, that might be a cause of a disfellowship between us. Um, what do you believe about the Bible? If you think the Bible is just a bunch of uh, nonsense or a bunch of uh, nice stories and nothing more than that. If you don't believe that it's the very word of God, then that might be a point of disfellowship between us. But when we talk about the deep, mysterious truths that are only perfectly known in the mind of God, maybe we can be a little bit more gracious with one another if we disagree. It goes back to the old adage which says, in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty, liberty to disagree. But in all things, we have charity, we have love. And so here's what I believe about these issues. And if you don't catch it all right now, you can listen to this sermon later on this week on our website. As I've already mentioned, God foreknows all things, both the real and the, and the possible. Secondly, I do not believe that God predestinates all events. For example, God does not predestinate sin. God does not cause sin. He does not predestinate sin. And so there are many things that God does not explicitly plan out in advance. 
However, God does, I believe, predestinate some events. Scripture is very clear about that, especially with predictive prophecy. There are prophecies that must occur because God said they would, and he tells us humans in advance some of the things that he has planned out. I also believe that sin and evil entered into the world because we as God's image bearers have a very important attribute that God also has. We have free will. And if there's no free will, then we cannot image God. Why is that? Because to be made in the image of God means that we are His representatives who serve as stewards and kings over this earth. And without free will, we cannot be his representatives. For how can a, a robot or an automaton represent a free being? God is free. How can a robot, how can just a puppet represent a free being? It's impossible. Without free will, we cannot be his stewards. Because how can God hold robots accountable? I mean... The robots, if, if, if everything is planned out in advance and the robots do something wrong, how can God hold that, that robot accountable if he's planned it all in advance? It just doesn't make any sense. And so we are free beings. But without free will, we can also not be kings. We cannot be his royal ambassadors. For what king is unable to make a choice? That's not a king. That's just a puppet. And so there is evil in this world because God gave us free will and we abused it. We used that free will to disobey the one who gave us free will. Not a good decision, but that's the world we're left in. The fault is ours. The fault is not God's. I also believe that God is at work to redeem Humanity, and he does this by influencing us to respond correctly to the revelation of himself to us. And one of the things that I believe God does predestinate is individual salvation. The passage in Romans 8 teaches this. But how does this happen? How exactly does this happen? You need, you need to understand that being elected by God for salvation does not mean that you lose your free will. Before you were saved, the scripture teaches that you had genuine freedom. You could choose to do bad things, and you might, like a broken clock, even get something right every so often. You might choose to do some good things. But there was one thing as a lost person that you could not choose to do. You could not choose to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was impossible because the Bible says that those without Christ are spiritually dead. We can go over here to Rest Haven Cemetery and we can poke and prod and yell at the dead people that dwell there and they're not going to respond. No matter what we do, they will not respond. They are dead. And that is what we are apart from Christ, spiritually dead, completely incapable, unable of responding to the gospel. And so we were spiritually dead. In order to receive Jesus 
in order to believe in the Lord Jesus and to be saved, something had to happen to us first. And the Bible says that we had to be quickened by the Holy Spirit. The word quickened means to be made alive. But what actually happens when the Holy Spirit quickens us? To be quickened by the Holy Spirit does not mean that God removes your free will. It means that for the first time, you're aware, really, of who Christ is. It means the blinders have been dropped from your eyes. You're aware for the first time that the gospel is really true and that it is the way the only way of salvation. Another word that the Bible uses to describe quickening is regeneration. And again, it means you're made alive. When, when a motor generates power, it, that motor is becoming, in a sense, alive. And this is what the Holy Spirit does in you prior to you freely choosing to follow Jesus. It's a sovereign act of God independent of your abilities, independent of your worthiness, because you're not worthy. It's independent of your actions. It is the grace of God, the quickening or the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in your life, making you alive, is an independent action of God, a sovereign act of God that He does in you. He brings to you salvation. Again, this doesn't remove your freedom. Your free will is left intact. What regeneration does, or quickening does, it now enables a choice that you were previously incapable of making. A choice to freely decide to follow Jesus Christ. The blinders that kept you from seeing who Jesus really was and that the gospel was really true, those blinders have fallen off like scales. And now for the first time, it finally all makes sense and of course I want to follow Jesus. It finally makes sense to you. I'm going to trade all of my sin and the garbage and the nastiness in my life for forgiveness. I'm going to trade death for all eternity in a devil's hell for eternal life with God. It finally makes sense. Yes, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you take someone who's not regenerated and you present those terms in black and white just as I presented them. Here are two options. Which one do you want? They just don't get it. They don't see why. They just don't believe that what you're saying is true. So it takes a regeneration of the Holy Spirit in your life to prompt you to believe. So with this understanding in mind, let's return to Romans 8:29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. God in a general sense foreknew all of the possibilities in this world. God foreknew, I'll give you an example. God foreknew the possibility that my father would marry a woman and produce my half-brother Steve. God foreknew the possibility that my mother would marry a man and produce my half-brother Charles and my half-sister Karen. And God foreknew the possibility that both my father and my mother would divorce their spouses 
and later meet one another and get married and have the baby of the family made. Now, should my father and my mother have divorced their first spouses? No, something went terribly wrong there. I don't know what it is that went wrong. But divorce is not pleasing to God. And so there was a, some tragic circumstances or relationships going on there. But if they hadn't divorced one another and later hadn't married one another, I very likely would not have even been around and you wouldn't be listening to this sermon right now and perhaps even thinking, boy, wouldn't that be bad? <laughs> but God knew all of these possibilities, all of these possibilities, and, and many more. This is the one that became a reality. But beyond that general foreknowledge of God, somehow, in the eternal and the perfect mind of God, the God of the universe, he said, David Rhodes, I choose you. I choose to make you alive. So come and follow my son. I give you my spirit. I have predestined you to become conformed to the image of my son so that my son will be the firstborn among many brethren. God is basically saying, I am building a big, big family. I want you to be a part of it. I want you to be a part of it. My son Jesus will be the firstborn, and he will have many brothers and sisters. It's as if God has said, I've already decided that his brothers and his sisters will be made into his likeness. I have predestined this. So come, be a part of my family. I'm calling you to join me. And you and I, being quickened by the Spirit of God, freely decide to follow Jesus. Verse 30. And these whom he predestined, predestined to do what? To become conformed to the image of Christ. These whom he has predestined, he also called and these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, the people that God foreknew in that intimate way, he has determined their destiny. Their destiny is to become like Jesus. And so God calls us. And if he calls us, he has justified us. That means he's made us righteous in his eyes the eternal holy God, the judge of the universe, has judged us to be like his son who is without sin. And if God has justified us, he has also glorified us. You might say, well, I, I thought that the, the glorification of our mortal bodies was future. What do you mean that he has already done it? Why is this in the past tense? It's in the past tense because it's as good as done. It's as good as done. You ever get a check from somebody and you know the check is good? But you get that check and you deposit it in the bank. What happens? It takes a day or two to clear, doesn't it? Did you get paid? You'd say, yes, I got paid. Did you deposit the check? Yeah, I deposited the check. 
Do you have the money yet? Not yet. Not yet. I have to wait for the check to clear. And that's what's happening to us. God has made the promise. We have the deposit of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We just have to wait a little bit. We just have to wait. You know the check is good. Because the deposit is there. He dwells in us. You see, there's coming a day when all things are going to be made right. All crimes are going to be accounted for. All sin will be judged. And we whom God has foreknown and predestined to be like His Son will finally experience, finally someday experience, a glorified, resurrected body that is free from sickness, free from cancer, free from old age, free from perhaps all these wrinkles and the gray hair. I don't know about that. But we're going to be free from sin, from the very presence of sin. We won't live in an environment that has sin. We won't have a body where sin dwells. It'll be free. And we will reign with Christ forever. We will reign with Christ, our brother, because we've been adopted into his family. We will reign with him over a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. And we will enter into the gates of the new Jerusalem. And we will eat freely from the tree of life, which brings healing for the nations. And I don't know if our eternity in that day, if in that eternity we will have knowledge of this life. I don't know if we'll have knowledge of this life, of the things that we have experienced now. Perhaps if we do those memories will fade over time and be replaced by better and greater experiences. But if we are able somehow to look back into this life, we will undoubtedly realize that indeed God caused all things, good and bad, to work together for our ultimate good because we are the ones who love God. We are the ones who are called according to to His glorious purpose. Question for you today is, do you believe? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? There might be someone sitting in this sanctuary thinking, wow, that's a lot to believe in. And I don't. I don't believe in that. Glad for all of you people that do. But I don't. I want you to know, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is patient toward you. He will continue to keep calling you for as long as you are alive because He loves you. But today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the day that you say, yes, I do believe. I believe that the Holy Spirit has made me alive in here because right now it finally makes, makes sense. And I want to follow Jesus.